Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I am your aptly named host and the podfather of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with us. I'd be hit with Wegener's granulomatosis if you pained me with the idea that you missed this week's show. Here's our associate producer, Kate, with the highlights. Hey, Tony. This week, it's Fundraising 401. That's Lawrence Pagnoni's latest book. When this first aired, it was his new book. But Lawrence's strategies and tactics are timeless. It's a series of masterclasses for all levels and a collection of revelations he gained over 35 years in nonprofit management and fundraising. This originally aired May 29th, 2020. On Tony's Take Two. Go live and in person. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity this giving season? DonorBox, the fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising platform for nonprofits. DonorBox.org. Here is Fundraising 401. It's a real pleasure to welcome back Lawrence Pagnoni to Nonprofit Radio. He's got 35 years in the sector as executive director and fundraising counsel. His latest book published this year is Fundraising 401, Masterclasses in Nonprofit Fundraising That Would Make Peter Drucker Proud. The company is at lapafundraising.com and at lapafundraising. Welcome, Lap. If the firm was Lapa, you're Lap, right? <laughs> yeah, we tripped upon the acronym uh, years and years ago. Uh, we always used the full Lawrence A. Pagnoni and Associates. And yes, then I remember. One day we uh, just had written Lapa and they said, oh, that had good alliteration. We should use that. Okay. <laughs> so you went the way of uh, AAA and, uh, and AARP. You know, they don't, you're, not, you're not Lawrence A. Pagnoni Associates anymore. You're, you're Lapa. That's right. Okay. All right. It's the, it's the 21st century now. All right. There's, there's also a, a mini lesson there uh, for nonprofits um, about uh, branding, trying to get it right at the beginning is important, but good bra- the difference between good branding and great branding is the, the width of the Grand Canyon. And so I didn't ever want to venture into rebranding it without great counsel, which I've never been able to afford. <laughs> so, so you stumbled on Lapa and we evolve, you know, you, yes. The, it's proof that the, the greatness doesn't come out in the beginning. You can't plan all the greatness in the beginning. It has to, it has to organically come about. All right. Exactly. So uh, it's been like six and a half years. You were on the, uh, you were for your first book, the nonprofit fundraising solution. Uh, you were on nonprofit radio on uh, November 8th. Uh, 2013. Uh, wow. Uh, when that book was new, seven years ago, and, and now you're second. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, uh, why does, uh, why does uh, management consultant Peter Drucker belong in the title? Uh, <clears throat> an homage to Peter Drucker, mm-hmm. who taught me how to think. Uh, well, I guess the Jesuits would take the first bow for that, but Peter Drucker... Um, I was a Peter Drucker fellow in the 1990s here in New York City, 
And <clears throat> it was Peter who taught me how to integrate fundraising into organizational development. Uh, besides just being a, a great per human being, he was a brilliant uh, strategist and thinker. He, of course, wrote the original book on re-engineering General Motors. And, um, but he spent the last years of his life uh, focused on the, what he called the higher profit sector, uh, what we call the nonprofit sector. But he, uh, he thought that if there wasn't a coalescing of uh, the nonprofit sector's values with uh, the business sector, that society would uh, be deficient for, for that not happening. So um, uh, actually, when I started writing this book, um, I didn't realize the degree to which Druckerian thinking had dominated my own thinking. <clears throat> and it was about a dozen chapters in that my editor said, you use Drucker an awful lot. I said, tell yeah. me how many times. And then I was like astounded. And, um, and then I, I added that little yeah. homage uh, and, to him. And, and Drucker had the book uh, Managing the Nonprofit Organization. Yes. So he was committed to the, to the sector, uh, to yes. what he called, what did he call the, the higher profit? Is that what he called it? The higher profit? The higher profit sector, yes. Uh, Peter Drucker. Uh, there it is. Managing All the right. nonprofit organization. <laughs> it's, it's been on my desk uh, since 1991, <laughs> I think. Um, and I read right. and reread it, as I hope you will do my book, Fundraising 401, uh, coming forward. Yes, I've and I've replayed uh, your show on the on the first book uh, three times since uh, 2013. So I'm, I, thank I've, you, Tony. It's a it's a go to for still is for people who ask me how do I get to the next level. I get that question every I don't know maybe a couple times a month, maybe not that often sometimes, but I recommend the book for how to get to the next level. It's a it's a, it's a very systematic and sensible approach. Um, the, uh, the the fundraising. Uh, the nonprofit fundraising solution was the the pros of fundraising, but fundraising 401 is really the poetry. Um, it's more the the art of fundraising, whereas the other one was the science. Yeah, you, you say that, and there's you talk about the art and the science in one of your chapters, but you, you talk about growing into answers and moving to a better set of problems. With both of which sound uh, artistic. Well, talk about that, growing into answers and better set of problems. Well, oftentimes uh, nonprofits <clears throat> there there uh, there's not enough room in in scopes of service. You know, you hire a fundraiser to fundraise, and you define a scope of service. But a really advanced fundraising system, once it gets going, it has to look carefully at what the donors are saying, what the institutional funders are saying, uh, what is working in social media and what's not. For one of our large clients connected with Johns Hopkins University, uh, they weren't able to raise any money online. And we um, changed the way they approach social media and within... The first year, they had an extra $100,000 from their social media program. Um, so figuring out as you go along um, 
more efficient ways and building that creativity in is, is very important and, um, um, and uh, defining it too rigidly uh, uh, shuts that down. I, I, I did like a better set of problems. You know, you, you uh, tell an anecdote, uh, you, 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 for some reason a board was getting involved in whether to buy a fax machine. Let's not get into whether a board should even be deciding whether to buy a fax machine, but you know, <laughs> you just went out and bought the damn thing yourself. And so said, now, now the fax machine is not a, now communicating with our donors back when fax, this was many years ago. Uh, now communicating with our donors and our funders is not a problem. Let, let, so that, that was, for me, that was okay. Better set of problems. Let's not so, deal with the damn fax machine. I'll buy it, and now let's deal with communications. Right. But uh, here's a here's a more sophisticated, better set of problems. Let's say right now, you don't know who your monthly donors are or your plan donors are, and you do research to figure out. Maybe a lot of nonprofits don't know the date of birth of their donors, so. Let's say you do research and you integrate just the date of birth into your donor database and you're able to segment, um, you know, suddenly you discover, as, as is the case with one of our clients, and I remember your rule about the difference between an active and a passive plan giving program, they, mm. they discovered they had 750 people over age 65. They, they, were, they were not aware of that until they had their date of birth. And so now they have a better set of problems. They're able to think about plan giving because they know they have a donor segment that is uh, that matches that. So um, that is my definition of organizational growth. To but a, a lot of of um, of us don't, we have the same problem over and over again, and that is being stuck. And um, I, I wrote this book to tease out ways to get unstuck. Um, and to try some new things within your thinking first and foremost. This is a book about how to think about fundraising. A series of revelations. A series uh, of revelations. So, what, so we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of them. Um, you, you talk about uh, fundraising as uh, uh, analogized to, uh, to dating, dating relationships. Yeah, say a little about that. Sure. So <clears throat> uh, when two people meet, they have to learn what the other person's up for. They have to learn their values, their mutual sexual attraction, their ability to work on and solve problems together. Now, absent the mutual sexual attraction, uh, the same applies to getting to know your donors, putting your donors first, uh, listening to your funders, pushing back a little bit with your funders about what your real needs are, having conversations that are thoughtful. And um, so uh, uh, getting to know uh, the, the uh, revenue streams that you're working through is, is, is just similar to dating, but without the sexual romantic energy. Listening, listening, listening. is critical. Yeah. You mentioned listening. And, and uh, if you're not sympathetic, uh, simpatico, if you're not simpatico, um, like uh, uh, one donor who, who I was trying to get a six-figure gift from for a teenage pregnancy prevention program, I've been telling this story for years, so pardon if you've heard it, but it was such a rich experience for me. 
you know, right early in the conversation, he said, you know, um, I don't believe teenagers should be having sex. And I just let the silence sit there. Of course, inside myself, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, God, you know, <laughs> I, just, I just lost the gift. But I, I just uh, listened uh, in a posture of tell me more. And then he said, and honest, honest to Pete, Tony, uh, two minutes must have passed. I, I really was uh, starting to sweat a little bit. And then he said, but I thought that's not a situation. And, uh, and that the clients you serve need the kind of program that your agency is uh, recommending. So let's talk about how that would work. And uh, so he was up for it, but he was starting from a place of his own, you know, position, but showing flexibility about thinking. Yeah. So he was up for the dating relationship. Well, well, maybe it was a one night stand. But uh, that, you, have that, you have that story in the book, and he gave, ended up giving $25,000, right? Yes. Because you were, you were yes. a good listener. So that, yes. maybe that was a one-time gift. So I analogize. No, no, he gave for three years. I did. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So it was yeah. a short-term relationship. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, our product, our, our product is impact. What's that about? Well... <clears throat> Too many people confuse that they're giving to your nonprofit, you know, um, the uh, Bread for the World or Partners in Health or um, whatever the name of the nonprofit is. Donors don't give to your nonprofit. They give for the mission and the impact. And, and, and you have to be clear about, you know, with your gift, we'll be able to have more of an impact. Here's the impact we've had. Here's the aspirational impact that we're looking for. Um, Bill Shore uh, from Share Our Strength has been a, a real role model in the nonprofit sector uh, for talking about the real overhead costs that we should be advocating for to really get the job done. He asked the provocative question, um, if would you be satisfied if my overhead were 5% but I didn't feed all the hungry people that came to me yeah. versus if it was 35% and I did feed them all, uh, which would you prefer? And uh, uh, that, that is a, a good question. And you could, each agency could have their version of that um, to talk about aspirational uh, goals and, um, and, and, and if, because if you don't define them, no one, no one else is. And you, you talk about the importance of uh, measuring impact, yes. knowing what your return on investment is, your ROI, uh, and, and communicating, sharing that. I mean, it's, it, it's critical. Yes. So um, having not just an evaluation program that complies with the funder's requirements, as so many government contracts do, but having an evaluation program that helps the staff make management decisions about what programs are working and what are not. When I was the nonprofit CEO of Harlem United for uh, six years, our data showed us that our substance abuse case management program did okay. But what really kept people in sobriety was our pastoral counseling and pastoral care program, 
mm-hmm. uh, because the clients, it was, it was non-denominational. It was a healing experience and it had twice the amount of, uh, of sobriety retention as our substance abuse counseling program did. If we hadn't been looking at the data, we wouldn't have known that. And so we took that news to religious oriented funders and hired three more pastoral counselors and uh, built a partnership with Hospital Chaplaincy Inc. who trains pastoral counselors. And um, we had had a strong spike in sobriety amongst our clients. It was really quite beautiful and it's lasted for years. All from understanding what your data is revealing, what your true impact is. It's time for a break. Are you looking to maximize your fundraising efforts and impact this giving season? DonorBox's online donation platform is designed to help you reach your fundraising goals. From customizable donation forms, to far-reaching easy-share crowdfunding and peer-to-peer options, plus seamless in-person giving with DonorBox Live Kiosk. DonorBox makes giving simple and fast for your donors and moves the needle on your mission. Visit DonorBox.org and let DonorBox help you help others. Now back to Fundraising 401. You mentioned staff. Um, we're jumping around a little bit, but uh, I, you you highlight that uh, you used to think that uh, clients should come first, but now you feel it's staff should come first. Uh, yeah. st- retention strategies, uh, professional development. I don't know if you mentioned mentoring, but that always comes up. You know, talk about investments and in, uh, investments that are that need to be made in in staff, and why yeah. you think staff is number one now. Boy, have I come a long way as a as an advocate for the poor from a t- being a teenager. Um, when I worked in a volunteered in a soup kitchen myself, thanks to my my good old Teamster Union dad, mm-hmm. um, uh, I never wavered from you know clients first. And uh, <clears throat> but um, it's not that I'm saying clients take a back seat. I'm saying that if we make staff primary clients will be better served. Mm -hmm. Uh, Staff retention at nonprofits is alarming. And worse yet, uh, younger generations um, leave the sector faster than our generation, those of us in in our 50s. Um, They leave the the sector faster because they have a bad experience with a board or the the poor compensation is not livable for their family. So, um, but it's not just about the conditions of, of employment. Uh, uh, it's also about <clears throat> is the nonprofit a learning environment, a learning organization. Uh, here at LAPA Fundraising, we have just a half a dozen shared values within our firm and professional development and advancement is, um, is one of them. And we pay every year, every staff person has a professional development uh, plan right? and we pay for it and um, we're happy to do it. Um, uh, 
because um, people, our staff will tell you, you know, we aspire, whether we succeed at it completely, I, I don't, you'd have to ask them, but we aspire to be a learning organization, not just learning on our accounts, but learning from best practices in the field and colleagues. We bring colleagues in. Um, we're big into what's called the Enneagram in our workplace. Um, it's an, it's, a, it's an emotional intelligence system for the workplace that, that helps people understand how their, our clients are viewing the world, how they're built. Mm. And the Enneagram dot, Enneagram Institute dot org, I believe, um, would introduce you to it. It has some videos there. So we, we need to overcome, leave behind this idea that uh, professional development, uh, technology to support staff, you know, that these are luxuries. You know, we're, we, 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 a, being a couple of operating systems behind is okay because it, it's more important that we spend our money on the, on the people or the programs. You know, that's, um, that's, that's outdated thinking. I mean, you're, yeah. And, and you, what we're seeing in terms of younger folks leaving the sector is, is bearing out that, bearing that out. Yeah. That's, that's evidence that we're not providing what they're looking for. So they try yeah. one or two jobs and, and then they leave. That's, that's not, talk about not, not sustainable. I could just hear some of your audience members saying, ask Lawrence to tell me where to find money for technology improvements or um, or um, professional development. All right, well, good. You're channeling the audience like I do. So <laughs> ask the so, answer, answer them. It's hard. Um, I know. Uh, what, what we do is we build it into our overhead rate. And where we can, we try to get, so many nonprofits have such a low overhead rate. And that's, again, back what Bill Shore was talking about. Um, some government contracts actually curb you at 10%. And most nonprofits have an overhead rate at least at 23, 24%. And arguably it should be probably closer to 35. I think yeah. all the major universities are somewhere north of 50% overhead. Um, so uh, trying to get it in, into your overhead. And then of course, uh, looking for more general operating support by identifying donor advised funds, which by definition, as you know, Tony, are hidden. Uh, there are profiles you could use to assume that somebody probably has a donor advised fund. We do that in our prospect research. And then of course we ask directly when we're talking to them or surveying them. So people who have donor advised funds are very friendly to you know, odd costs or what, you know, what the, as contrasted to institutional funders where you get a grant for your program, sometimes uh, in those grants, you can add a computer, you can say we need, you know, 40 hours of professional development. So integrating it into all your fundraising uh, and into your overhead rate has worked in, uh, with many of our clients. Um, and then of course, there's rare occasions when an RFP is issued where you can ask for things like that. Mm -hmm. You did some work with uh, sterile needle exchange. 
just talk, talk about that a little bit. That sounds like a good story. Yeah. Harm reduction. Um, again, a better set of problems. Um, it's better to have needle, uh, uh, needle users use clean needles than to have them keep using uh, dirty needles because it reduces the spread of HIV and STDs mm -hmm. uh, and bloodborne infections. Um, so that's a better harm reduction is a better set of problems with science behind it. And um, this is true, not in the, just in the United States, but in uh, all throughout the world and uh, uh, European countries uh, who have harm reduction policies. Um, harm reduction um, is still needed. It's, it's kind of fallen out of fashion. There's just a handful, maybe two or three uh, funders who are interested in it. The Drug Policy Alliance is still interested in it. And the, uh, the the Comer Foundation, if if they're still around, uh, what was what was your work in harm reduction? Ah, uh, well, I uh, had uh, I helped um, the New York harm reduction educators in the Bronx uh, form a hotline so that people could reach them, and uh, we went to check cashing stores um, where the poor the poor in the Bronx generally don't use a bank. They pay to have their right. check cashed, which is a scandal unto itself. But yeah, it's exorbitant. Right. If we would expand the United States postal services to what it was in the 1950s, they, they, they wouldn't have, have that. There's a direct link between the reduction of the role of the U S postal service in, in its role with money orders and check cashing and the, the upswing of these for-profit sleazy check cashing. Places. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, we're, but yeah, anyway, that, we, we yeah. went to the check cashing places <clears throat> and um, asked, we paid them. We had to pay them when they, they cashed the check to put our business card for the, the New York harm reduction educators with the 1-800 number on. And we saw on average 800 new enrollees into the nonprofit uh, to get access to uh, HIV prevention and treatment services. Yeah, I, I, did, uh, I did work in uh, Philadelphia when I was in law school with a, an organization called Prevention Point Philadelphia. It was a, it was a grassroots sterile needle exchange. <clears throat> Excuse me, they were going to, to parks in areas where they knew drug activity was high on weekends and literally distributing um, marked sterile needles marked so that they knew when they got their own back so they could they had some um, they had a measure of, of effectiveness how many sterile needles were coming back and how many unmarked needles so dirty needles they were getting off the streets um, and that was uh, incredibly rewarding it was an internship but just to see the the, the, the fathers walk up or drive up with a with a, a young child in tow and you know, taking a half a dozen needles and giving us a half a dozen, you know. Uh, but I know the statistics are there that uh, it reduces. Uh, and this was 1989, 1990. Uh, you know, HIV was much more dangerous than, than it is now. I mean, it's, right. And it's, here, here you see in, in, our, in the conversation right now between Tony and I, how a fundraiser discovers his or her product to sell. 
this is what fundraisers do at the highest level. We listen to the caseworkers, to the clients, to the uh, statistics, to the, the best practice studies. Um, for example, with a, an affordable housing program that I'm starting to work with in uh, Orlando, Florida, the executive director was blown away because the first thing we've, we're starting to do is we've read 10 years worth of completely boring but totally relevant uh, thinking from the, the Orlando Housing Authority about their needs assessments. They do them, they're required to do them every uh, 10 years. And those documents are chock full with, uh, with really good data. Um, I mean, that, that's something to be a pr proud of in our country is we, we still have some semblance of these uh, local civic governments that are doing their due diligence about community need. Um, but this is how fundraisers then get a very powerful case for support developed. Um, and uh, uh, that's why there's a chapter about impact and the, the, uh, the, the product is your program and its impact. Yeah. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Thank you, Kate. This week, I was at a live, in-person, face-to-face, in-real-life conference in Oklahoma City. It was hosted by the Sarkis Foundation, which funds Oklahoma nonprofits. The joy of getting back in person. That's really what I want to focus on. It's just so good to shake hands and to be able to have conversations without a little Zoom or or, or uh, Teams delay, you know, that lag time that prevents you from sometimes getting something in, you know, that just has needs just special timing. You know, you, you end up biting your tongue because it's not going to sound right and you have to explain what you were saying. And then if you have to explain something, it doesn't make any sense. You shouldn't even bother doing it if you got to explain what it was supposed to mean uh, on the virtual platforms. But in person, th the conversations are just easier. They're more personable. I can shake hands. I can hug somebody that I haven't seen for a long time. Uh, or even I, I made some new friends. Uh, I made friends on the first day of the conference. Uh, it was a two-day conference. When it was over the next day, I was hugging people to say goodbye. That's what I want to celebrate. The joy of being in person, in real life, face-to-face, -face, whatever you call it. Zoom and their ilk are distant, distant second-place runners to being in person. There's nothing like it. Nothing even comes close. So... If you have opportunities in the coming year to go to something in person, I hope you'll do it. I hope you'll take the extra time and the extra money and do it. It makes a big, big difference. It's a so much it's it's a so much more joyous occasion to be in person. Even at a conference. I'm not even talking about a party, it's a conference. Please, I hope you'll take the opportunities that you get to be in person. That is Tony's take two. Kate. Not only are we 
in person, but we don't have those masks hiding our face anymore. We can see people and see their emotions and their feelings and really connect more without like a piece of cloth on our mouth. I mean, of course we have to stay safe at, at that time, but like when I was in school, for two years, I didn't see my best friend's face until we were graduating, like a whole two years. I never saw their face. And then I finally yeah. saw them and who they are as a person. So yay in person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you, you know, I agree. <laughs> We've got Buku, but loads more time. Now back to Fundraising 401 with Lawrence Pagnoni. You talk about the donor as hero. What uh, what are you thinking there? Well, uh, or I, I should say share your thinking because I know what you're thinking because I read your I read your book. So listen, you just got to get the book if you want to flesh out the full th thinking. Sure, but Lawrence will introduce you to his thinking as donors as heroes. So many appeal letters or annual reports or newsletter, they make the client the hero. Uh, there's there's wisdom to that. They make the, the organization itself the hero. But in fundraising, the donor is the hero. And I grew up in a nonprofit sector that ignored the, 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 ignored the donor. The essential message to the donor for most of my life has been give and shut up. Um, but today's donor wants to be heard. They want to be acknowledged. They will give more. They will become more involved. It was Terry Axelrod, the founder of the Benevon model of fundraising, that uh, started to give me a hint that donors wanted to be engaged. And then the data bore that out. Um, I started to take on clients who would tell me, oh, we could never ask our, our volunteers for money. I haven't heard that question in the past uh, five years or so, uh, better set of problems. Right. I think I think people are more convinced that they realize their donors want to give. And hello out there, if you think your do if you still think your donors, do your volunteers don't volunteers, want to give, yeah. Yeah. woo! Please evaluate that. Read my book and evaluate that because your yeah. volunteers want to give. You, uh, I, I, one little quote you say, as you're writing, you know, as you're writing to your donors, um, tell the story as if the donor were sitting before you over a cup of coffee. Uh, you suggest, you know, see their smile, speak their name. Um, you make it a, make it a conversation. Yeah. You know, you, this idea of stilted language, uh, you have to fill an eight and a half by 11 page sheet of paper. You know, maybe sometimes you do, but if you don't need to, then don't. Um, handwriting, handwriting, handwritten solicitations can be probably more sincere than something you produce on Word and, and feel constrained to, compelled to fill a page uh, around. So, you know, get close I, and talk to people like, uh, like you would like to be talked to. I learned from uh, Tom Ahern about some of the nuances about making the donor the hero. And um, it actually influenced my book cover uh, you could see, you know, the, Lawrence is holding the book his book. For those listening, Lawrence is holding up his book cover. Okay. Going below, there's a, a hook with a dollar sign going below the surface of the water. Because the point is to, to raise the big money, you have to 
think more deeply about fundraising and what's motivating the donor. Um, but uh, we start making the case right on the cover uh, of a newsletter or a case for support. We recently did a case for support for an animal welfare agency where we put the, a picture of the cutest cat on one case and the cutest dog on the other with their owners who had just adopted them, holding them. Yeah. But right underneath it, we put the question, how can we ever say no? So we're, we're saying to the donor. It wasn't donor, an, how can you, how can you say no? Isn't how can it? you ever say no? Yeah. Not, right. How can you how say, can you right. ever say you gotta no? Gotta get the you, you gotta get the yes. you and yours in there. Gotta yeah. get the you in there. Okay. See, I read the book. You, you, you missed the, you blew the whole, t <laughs> the whole point is you gotta have the you in there. Not how can we, how can you? All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, you, yours, you, it's all about you and yes, yours. Yes, you and yours. I know Tom Ahern uh, stresses that. He even has a calculator on, on the web somewhere. It might be <laughs> ahern.com or something where you can put your text in and it'll evaluate how many you's you have versus how many we's or something like that. Right. Um, but I'm constantly, I'm constantly rewriting, you know, the, can we change the to you, the donor, your, you, your donors. I mean, as I'm writing to clients, instead of the donors, your donors, you know, you, it, you're, you're talking now to the, in the second person instead of the abstract third person, the donor. That could be anybody's donors. No, we're yeah. talking about your donors, your donor. That's just not in, not in the abstract. I, I think it, it, brings, it makes it more concrete that using the, that second person. Yeah. And it, it also, it's, it's not just a linguistic shift. It, there's a research science behind it, uh, psychology science, psychological sciences behind it that the donors uh, feel like, oh, he, he really is talking about me. And, and um, so we raise more money with that approach. By the way, did I, uh, did I mispronounce your name when I introduced you? Uh, no, you, you always Pagnoni, have a, a, I didn't. Oh, I had hoped uh, that I had ho mispronounced your name because I had hoped that by now, six and a half years later, you had changed the pronunciation to Pagnoni. Why are you still defacing your beautiful Italian name with, with Pagnoni? Oh, it's, it's worse than that. The, the whole name on the birth certificate is Lorenzo Antonio Pagnoni. What? Yes, Pagnoni. Pa why like are you still It's like opera, you know. I know you. You uh, in 2013, you mentioned your grandmother. But, yeah, it was my, my grandmother's. Uh, 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 she loved the opera, and that she'd tell me that all the time. Your name's a little opera. So. I would rather you take the G out and make it Panoni, or switch it to Panini or something. Please, but you're 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 killing the the beautiful pronunciation, Panoni. <laughs> right. I'll try, uh, Tony. I promise to try. <laughs> all right, it's worth it's worth the investment. It's worth the investment in changing the pronunciation. Not the spelling, just the pronunciation. People will still be able to find you on the web. All right. Um, you, say, you say all donors are major donors. And following from that, all gifts are major gifts. What, what, why is that? Uh, to me, you know, we're stratifying. We have our modest donors because we're, we're too afraid to call them small donors. So we say they're modest. And then we have our mid-level and then major and then, you know, maybe ultra. But you say all, all donors are major donors. Yes. Because nobody has to give a dime to you. Nobody has to give their hard-earned money to you. Nobody has to. 
and because of that, they all should be treated uh, in a major way. Now, of course, in, in the systems of fundraising, we might have automation in place, I hope it's thoughtful automation for donors who are, uh, you know, from uh, $1 to say uh, $5,000 uh, for major donors or transformational donors at the higher levels, you know, we have more personal touch. Um, it's expensive, uh, major gift officers who know what they're doing are uh, have come at a higher salary because their skills are honed over years and uh, they know how to deeply listen and use the data to ask for transformational gifts, multi-year gifts, legacy gifts. Um, but, um, but, but I'm trying to convey that we shouldn't take any dollar, no matter the size amount for granted that, that they don't have to give and uh, people are giving, you know, Jesus pointed out in scripture, the widow's might was greater than the Pharisees uh, giving uh, because she gave from her heart and she gave from her want. And um, so um, I had to learn again, just like with professional development, I had to learn this the hard way. My development, when I belly ached about a donor giving less than I thought, uh, he he could have. My development director quietly closed the door, sat down with that white flustered <laughs> look on his face, like Lawrence, Jesus, Mother of God, you know, what am I going to do with you? You're supposed to be our leader. <laughs> and, and he said to me, Lawrence, every gift is a major one. And he didn't have to give that gift. And that's a real story. And I went silent and I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's, that's damn true. Yeah. Um, right. Eventually that donor, because of the way my development director treated him so kingly, um, he did give at much higher levels later on, but not, nobody has to give us a dime. The Jesuits would be proud of you. Still, uh, <laughs> still quoting, still quoting scripture. You, that, that influence that, that's with you forever. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, something else you you uh, seems provocative that uh, you you devote a chapter to is uh, revenue diversification. You uh, you tell us it's overrated. Yes. Flesh that out, would you? For smaller organizations, diverse, revenue diversification is really essential. I'm not naive about that, but it's expensive to do well. Um, most smaller organizations barely have, uh, well, the profile of most organizations is that they don't even have a development office. They, uh, they have um, the, the program director and the executive director, you know, writes the grants or um, um, manages the gala. They might bring in a, a gala event consultant. <clears throat> but um, when, when Stanford University did a study of, I think it was 130 major nonprofits who had gotten over $50 million annual revenues. They discovered that diversification of revenue went down. And that study was a seminal piece of research that changed our thinking about diversification. So as a nonprofit grows to a better set of problems, um, uh, its revenue sh stream should become deeper, not wider. 
And right. deeper, uh, so for deeper example, in what's deeper in what's most successful. That's right. And, and most lucrative. Uh, for example, Habitat for Humanity, they started with um, in-kind donations as their biggest source of revenue that they uh, stuff that they needed for the houses that they were building. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, not just, uh, you know, poor quality stuff. Yeah, yeah. But then they realized that the people who donated that stuff were willing to donate. And so they started an individual donor program that eventually grew as they did donor research to major, major gift uh, program. And they went deeper and deeper into that source of revenue, individual giving. They, they formed monthly giving. They formed uh, eventually online giving. They they formed uh, legacy societies. Um, so within each revenue stream, you can create enormous depth. And uh, instead of expanding outside, uh, uh, could Habitat have taken government monies? Probably. Uh, some of them eventually did um, in, in localities that where the local government said, hey, we want to help because this is part of our community development uh, program. And so they, they got uh, some. This is also an example of where you need to invest in staff. You know, if you want to, if, if you want to go deeper in the, uh, in the, in the channel, the fundraising method, that's, that's most lucrative for you. You're, you're going to have to do it with, with a professional who's got an experience, who's got experience in that, in that channel and maybe others as well, but you know, it can't continually be the executive director trying to deepen fundraising in the most luke from the most lucrative source and manage the organization oversee the programs ensure compliance i mean this is where you have to invest if you want to be among those few charities that gets to the whatever 50 or 55 million dollar level you know it's doable but you need to invest in growth when i last talked to you in 2013 our firm talked a good game about prospect research services and we did we did deliver some services, but we got honest with ourselves that we had to invest. Um, seven years later, we have uh, you know a six-person team, mm. and when we do donor research now, we find I mean we found a hundred and eight thousand new donors, value-aligned donors for Lutheran Social Services. We found 8,000 new donors for the food bank in, in New Jersey. Um, we found uh, uh, 42 new board member candidates for St. Christopher's Inn in Garrison, New York. And I mean, our donor all, research. Is all from in, investing in prospect research? Yeah. And, and also the field itself has matured and, and developed and it's not just about the data, it's about using how to use the data. Uh, when you marry the data vendors with a trained fundraiser, that's where you have the alchemy. And, and you have a whole, ch- you have a, a chapter devoted to not underfunding uh, advancement or, exactly. or development. You know, it's called development for a reason. You make the point, you know, it, it needs to grow. And if you're going to grow it, you got to invest in it. So don't underfund your development. And, and by the way, I, I just gave you the tip for my, the, the, the book, the next book, uh, How to Find New Donors, which will be out um, sometime in 2021. Are you doing a prospect research book? Yeah. Uh, interesting you call it that. I'm not sure. 
it's funny. Um, I'm, I, I'm professionally, I'm a fundraiser. I'm not a prospect researcher. Yeah. And I use the tools. I know <clears throat> good prospect researchers. Obviously, we have them here at the firm. <clears throat> I, and I know I'm not one of them, but I'm a fundraiser who uses the data. So that's what the book's about. It's, it's a nuance, maybe a distinction without a difference, but, but there are very wonky, very good prospect research books out there that I couldn't possibly write. Okay. Okay. Let's, um, let, I, I still have some other things I want to cover with you. We got like another 10 minutes or so left, but, okay. uh, let me throw to you. What what do you what do you want to talk about from the book? Well, right off, I, I'd like to uh, uh, invite the reader to 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 actually uh, read it. I talk to a lot of fundraisers, and I'm not convinced. Well, that sounds like that, I think that's sound advice for a book uh, a book <laughs> author. Yeah, it can't be assumed. <laughs> My um, book, for God's sake. <laughs> well, I actually learned this from a, a terrific fundraiser um, who headed up the Heyman Institute um, at, uh, at New York University. Yeah, uh, Naomi Levine. And, yeah, I had, I had her on the show years ago. Yes, I remember. Naomi, you know, kicked my butt around Lawrence. You know, you have to read not just in our field extensively, but you have to read in the field of economics, in the field of sociology, in the field of, of uh, science, uh, because the donors are expert in those fields. Um, I remember going into a meeting with an engineer uh, on a planned gift, and um, he mentioned something that I had read because of Naomi's suggestion about the field of, of uh, environmental engineering. And I said to him, you know, I know enough to be dangerous, but are you talking about, you know, corrosive engineering protection? And his, his <laughs> eyes lit up. He said, how the hell did you know that? And um, Where'd you learn those words, that phrase, yeah. corrosive and, engineering protection? And, right. and there, there's affinity. Uh, and this is our job as fundraisers. Yes. This is why it's, it's, a, it's an amazing field. Uh, you never are, you could, if you're bored as a fundraiser, holy cow, you read my book and find out, you know, a way to become un, unbored. But, my point, Tony, is that so many fundraisers are stayed. Uh, they're, they're kind of, they know what they know. Um, I could tell you at this time in my life more about what I don't know about fundraising than, than what I know about it and why I surround myself with good thinkers myself. And um, uh, I've been told that this book, and this is my second point, is 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 both helpful for somebody advanced in fundraising like yourself and it's also helpful for people who are new or mid-career that it's a very approachable book primarily because I tell stories that are based in reality and I then give the uh the more advanced theory behind it yeah so yeah, I agree. Um, it is it I is you found that to be the case it is approachable yeah um all right it's my turn again now so you you um, you have advice for uh, uh, CEO um, decision making and also CEO as fundraiser. So I want to I want to put those two together and and explore what what decisions about fundraising are appropriate at the CEO level. Yeah. So uh, knowing the plan and understanding the plan. 
of how to move to a better set of problems? Do you have the same fundraising dilemma year in and year out? That's the CEO's job to kick the board's butt and the, uh, the, the development team's butt uh, uh, because so many fundraising programs have the same problem year in and year out. That means it's stuck and, um, and that's primarily on the shoulders of the CEO. Uh, the underfunding of the development team, that's on the shoulders of the CEO. The CEO has to find the revenue to fund the capacity to pay for development. Um, and I offer many at, on my blog uh, at lapafundraising.com, I offer you know thousands of suggestions about how to pay for fundraising. Um, and um, <clears throat> so there's two examples. Uh, a third example I'd give of the CEO's job in fundraising is that they have to uh, um, box the ears or guide uh, the board's engagement. Did you say box? Box the ears. Uh, Yeah. Box the ears of or guide. Okay. Or guide. Let's say with guide. Choose choose, uh, somewhere in that spectrum. (laughs) Somewhere in that spectrum. They have to guide the board's uh, way to think about fundraising because Boards who know nothing about fundraising are sitting there in judgment of professional fundraisers who have, you know, 25 years of experience. There's, they wouldn't do that to the program director. Some of them do, but that's another set of problems. They would, they generally don't do it to their attorneys. They wouldn't do, they certainly don't do it to their auditors, uh, but they feel free to do it to their fundraisers. Yeah. Things they would never do in their own business. Yeah. They, They, they do, uh, to, routinely, I, uh, some boards, you know, to yeah. to the CEO and the and the program staff of the the board, who's the the nonprofit whose boards they sit on. And you talk about a heavy lifting board. We got to have a heavy lifting board. Yes, uh, governance is a thing. Uh, governance is not for every volunteer. It's governance is not just for um, uh, the person who likes your mission or whose son or daughter benefited from, from your mission. Governance is a business proposition that the nonprofit sector has designed um, and it has roles and responsibilities for not just fiduciary roles, but for long range planning. It's the job of the executive team to think about the next three years but it's the job of the board to think about the next five to 10 years. Ten years yeah. And most boards never really uh, think about the long-term uh, plan. Now, you know, planning in this day and age is, is it, is it anachronistic? I don't think it is, but I'm a little bit old fashioned, but I think plans should be nimble and change, but you should still have a, a long range plan about what you want to look like in five to 10 years. Yeah, that heavy lifting board. And, and in terms of fundraising as well. And you make the point that uh, campaigns can be a very good, a very good vehicle for uh, recycling board or, you know, replacing board members that aren't, that aren't heavy lifting. You know, maybe there's right. an advisory council they can go on or some kind of emeritus status so that they're not uh, embarrassed, but still engaged, but, but, they're not, but they're not a fiduciary any longer with, with those true. obligations. And uh, so... All right, we have just like a minute or so left. Uh, leave, us, leave us with something, but do it uh, concisely. 
please. Uh, we're in the middle of, as you and I record this, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. The nonprofits that are raising more money through this pandemic are the ones with a deep culture of philanthropy. And that culture of philanthropy is defined by resiliency, resilience. Um, if you're serious about the next pandemic or about your own viability in the future, the 23 chapters of this book will deepen your culture of philanthropy so that you're more prepared for the future. If you're assessing yourself right now as that you were not ready for this pandemic, do not beat yourself up, but take it as a wake-up call to start getting ready for the economic crisis that we're going to be living through for the next couple of years and for the very much needed reform of our healthcare system so that the, uh, the poor and uh, communities of color are better served than what we're seeing in COVID-19. And uh, so that's a real reason to read this right now. Uh, Tony, you and I have lived through many crises and uh, COVID-19 certainly has its own characteristics that are unique, but um, there are always crises that we face and we have to be uh, uh, more resilient with a deeper culture of philanthropy and Fundraising 401 will help you get there. That's the book, Fundraising 401, Master Classes in Nonprofit Fundraising that would make Peter Drucker proud. He's Lawrence A. Pagnoni, LAP. Lawrence, thank you very, very much. Next week, your case for support with Phoebe Voth. If you missed any part of this week's show, I do beseech you to find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity this giving season? DonorBox, the fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising platform for nonprofits. DonorBox.org. I love that alliteration. You're into it this week. Fast, flexible, friendly fundraising platform. Nonprofits. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. I'm your associate producer, Kate Martinetti. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with us next week for Nonprofit Radio. I hope you will. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out there and be great. <laughs>